Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Estros, episode 32, The Copper King. Spoilers all books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England. And I'm Lady Gwen in Boston. Thanks for tuning in for our episode today, all about Renly Baratheon. Renly's a character we haven't said much about so far, but in this episode, we'll have plenty to say about him. Yes, we will. Having recently covered both Rob and Joffrey, we decided it was the ideal time to talk about Renly, especially given we have that War of the Five Kings episode we've been promising coming soon. Yeah, and today the episode will go like this. We'll begin with Renly's youth and background to give us a grounding in his character, motivations and relationships. We'll go on to consider his time at the formidable and historic castle Storm's End. From there, we'll examine his time at court, where he served the realm as the Master of Laws, and we'll include his political scheming, which we find very interesting. Then, we'll have a segment about Renly the King, where there'll be a lot about Stannis as well, followed by a reading of the Peach scene. We'll go on to examine Renly's end and his legacy, including a full rundown of the mystery of Renly's ghost, and have another reading, this time, of Renly's Death by Shadow. And we want to mention that we're leaving a discussion of Renly's romance with Loras and their sexual orientation for a future Loras episode. As a sidebar, it just didn't fit in with the political narrative we want to weave today, and we feel that George giving us a major secondary character who's gay is too important to overlook or rush through. So look for that in the future, most likely after The Winds of Winter is released, when we'll hopefully learn a little more about Sir Loras's fate. So, all that will be the episode, which will segue nicely into our upcoming War of the Five Kings episodes. Yes, so there's a lot to discuss. We feel that we're offering an episode today with plenty of observations and discussions you might not find elsewhere, so do stick around and see what we have to say about the youngest of the Baratheon brothers. And before we begin, we have a couple of announcements, so let's breeze through them. First of all, TV show season is approaching. Season 7 of the show is airing on the 16th of July. 
For those of you who watch the show, we're planning to be guests on History of Westeros podcast and YouTube channel for the third year. We'll be reviewing the season episode by episode as book readers. Yes, so that should be a lot of fun. Be sure to check us out on History of Westeros on iTunes or it's Westeros History on YouTube for the video feed there. And what we're going to do is put links up at our website, radiowesteros.com, so you can definitely find us without any problems. The season is just seven weeks long this time. It's been reduced. So if you are a non-show watcher, it's not too long to wait. We'll be back with more podcasts. As soon as the season is done, we'll release part one of our War of the Five Kings, and that should be a good one. Patrons, remember that there's no monthly charge with us. It's per episode, meaning nobody will pay a cent for us covering the show. So that's a freebie for anyone who wants it. During the show season, we'll try and release a couple of bonus items for you all too, in the desperate hope of trying to please everyone. And speaking of our patrons, we do have a Patreon campaign. Show me what you got! Well, what we got is a campaign on Patreon.com. Listeners can pledge an amount per regular episode... From $3 per episode, you are in turn rewarded by a tiered incentive system, depending on your pledge. There's everything from a private latest news feed to shout outs, scripts, patron episodes, live video chats with us. This all depends on your tier and your pledge. Or some people just want to help to keep us strong and ensure longevity of this podcast, and they just use Patreon as a means for donation. The amount of work going into these episodes is very large, so please check us out on patreon.com and consider a pledge. Incidentally, we produce about eight episodes per year, so it works out certainly less than a monthly fee. I like what you got. Good job. And speaking of patrons, thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, John Wergarian and Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Rosa, Rory, Ashley, Laura, Sister Winter, and Harry Krishna. And so now it's time to get going with the king who should have been. Or is it the king who never should have been? Renly Baratheon. In their midst, watching and laughing with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. Small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervor, she thought. He is Robert, come again. Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome, long of limb and broad of shoulder, with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile. The slender circlet around his brows seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought. At the front lifted a stag's head of dark green jade, adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. The crown stag decorated the king's green velvet tunic as well, worked in gold thread upon his chest. Baratheon sigil in the colors of Highgarden. The girl who shared the high seat with him was also of Highgarden, his young queen, Marjorie, daughter to Lord Mace Tyrell. Their marriage was the mortar that held the great Southern alliance together, Catelyn knew. Renly was one in twenty, the girl no older than Rob.
Renly Baratheon was born the third and youngest son of Stefan Baratheon and Kassana Estamont. He is around 21 years old at the beginning of A Game of Thrones, and through the books we learn about his youth before the start of the series. In this section, we'll piece together what we know of his early years into his time as Lord of Storm's End. And the first event of note in the life of Renly Baratheon was, unfortunately, a tragedy. Maester Cresson, maester at Storm's End, recalls the horror of the fateful day Robert, Stannis, and Renly lost their parents to the sea. The storm came up suddenly, howling, and Shipbreaker Bay proved the truth of its name. The lord's two-masted galley, Windproud, broke up within sight of his castle. From its parapets, his two eldest sons had watched as their father's ship was smashed against the rocks and swallowed by the waters. A hundred oarsmen and sailors went down with Lord Stephen Baratheon and his lady wife, and for days thereafter, every tide left a fresh crop of swollen corpses on the strand below Storm's End. Having been sent across the narrow sea in search of a bride for Prince Rhaegar by his cousin Ares Targaryen, Stephen, who might have been in line for the handship upon his return, died there in Shipbreaker Bay with his lady wife, and so close to home. Leaving three Baratheon orphans, we have none of the three brothers' POVs to completely assess what impact this might have had upon them, but with Renly being just an infant, and with the two older brothers being around 14 or 15 years older than him, coupled with the fact that they actually witnessed the desperate tragedy unfold, one could wonder if Renly was, emotionally at least, the least affected sibling here. And to support this, we'd point to Stannis' assertion that he stopped believing in gods the day he saw the Windproud break up across the bay, and perhaps Robert's distaste for House Targaryen could have taken root as Stefan had been travelling under their orders. There's no evidence, however, of similar bitterness or malcontent from Renly on this matter. Nevertheless, the absence of his parents shaped his life as one would expect. Fortunately, he found a father in Maester Cresson, who, despite admitting a preference for the quote, one unloved, Stannis, seems to have been genuinely fond of all three brothers. Here's a quote. When a maester donned his collar, he put aside the hope of children, yet Cresson had oft felt a father nonetheless. Robert, Stannis, Renly, three sons he had raised after the angry sea claimed Lord Stephen. And it's worth remembering that the older brothers were verging on manhood when Cresson assumed this fatherhood role, with Renly being around a year old. Cresson raised Renly at Storm's End, the ancestral seat of House Baratheon, whose walls are formidably thick, and those walls would soon be needed as Robert began his rebellion against Aerys Targaryen. Here we've covered Roberts with a special focus on the rebellion in episode 28, Demon of the Trident. So we point you there for a deep dive into the rebellion, its causes and its effects. However, let's look at the rebellion through Renly's lens here. Robert stepped up at around 19 years old and started a war against the long-established Targaryen dynasty. 
His martial prowess was already famed. He was a born warrior who would come to be idolised in songs and tales in all corners of the kingdom. So it's no wonder that Renly, who was a similar age to Bran during the rebellion, idolised his older brother. In A Storm of Swords, Stannis tells Davos that Edric Storm, quote, worships Robert as Renly did when he was young. Remembering Bran's fascination with the King's Guard and knighthood early in the story, imagine Renly's excitement at a similar age, at his elder brother's play for power. However, despite being behind those thick walls during the rebellion, Renly could not escape the reach of the war. Yeah, Storm's End came under siege. The castle was left with a small garrison by Robert, and after his defeat at Ashford, the Tyrell forces advanced to lay siege on the defense led by Stannis. This trauma is something Renly later recalls in conversation with Lord Rowan. When Mace Tyrell laid siege to Storm's End, Stannis ate rats rather than open his gates. Well, I remember. Renly lifted his chin to allow Brienne to fasten his gorget in place. Near the end, Sir Gowan Wilde and three of his knights tried to steal out a postern gate to surrender. Stannis caught them and ordered them flung from the walls with catapults. I can still see Gowan's face as they strapped him down. He had been our master at arms. Lord Rowan appeared puzzled. No men were hurled from the walls. I would surely remember that. Maester Cresson told Stannis that we might be forced to eat our dead, and there was no gain in flinging away good meat. Renly pushed back his hair. Brienne bound it with a velvet tie and pulled a padded cap down over his ears to cushion the weight of his helm. Thanks to the Onion Knight, we were never reduced to dining on corpses, but it was a close thing. Too close for Sir Gawain, who died in his cell. So a desperate situation, and one that surely left a mark on the young Renly. Although it's notable that Renly later marries into the Tyrells who laid siege and abandons Ned who saved him by lifting the siege. Despite the physical and emotional trauma of this siege, there was a happy ending for the Baratheons with Robert's victory against the Targaryens and Ned's timely relief. In the Joffrey episode, we highlighted what it must have been like to be Robert's son, living in the shadow of a man who changed the kingdoms. Equally, we have to wonder about Robert's brothers. Stannis, close in age to Robert, seems to have grown frustrated at his older brother taking the spotlight. He grinds his bitter teeth as he talks of, quote, never being able to best Robert at anything. And in dance, we see sarcasm in Stannis's tone. We all know what my brother would do. Robert would gallop up to the gates of Winterfell alone, break them with his warhammer, and ride through the rubble to slay Roose Bolton with his left hand and the bastard with his right. So clearly Robert and his legendary deeds have irked Stannis over the years, and you might describe him as suffering from middle sibling syndrome. In short, the eldest gets attention because of the extra responsibilities his age begets him. The younger sibling gets attention for being the youngest, and Stannis is right there in the middle. This assessment really pairs well with Crescent's observation that Stannis was, quote, unloved as a youth. However, where Stannis suffered, Renly might have thrived. Being so much younger than the pair, Renly could look up to Robert, perhaps even as a father figure. 
As we said, young boys like martial role models, and with Robert being the victor of the rebellion, and so the hero, there seems to have been more aspiration from Renly than jealousy. Yeah, through Renly's eyes, and he's got a really good point here, Robert won the Seven Kingdoms with force and popularity, overthrowing opposition and discarding tradition. Here's a quote. Tell me, what right did my brother Robert ever have to the Iron Throne? He did not wait for an answer. Oh, there was talk of the blood ties between Baratheon and Targaryen, of weddings a hundred years past, of second sons and elder daughters. No one but the maesters care about any of it. Robert won the throne with his warhammer. Okay, so we'll see that Robert's model for attaining power is the inspiration for Renly's political manoeuvring. Even when anticipating being called a usurper, Renly uses Robert's example, in his eyes, a precedent, as justification. Robert was my elder brother. You were the younger, says Stannis. Younger, bolder, and far more comely, and a thief and a usurper besides. Renly shrugged. The Targaryens called Robert usurper. He seemed to be able to bear the shame. So shall I. Whether Renly's angle is morally correct and whether he was right to compare his and Robert's situation almost like for like will be discussed today. But in this section, we simply wanted to provide you with the groundwork for Renly's claim to the Iron Throne through his lens. Remembering that Renly used to quote, worship Robert, and that he is a similar age at the start of A Game of Thrones to Robert at the start of the Rebellion, with frequent comparisons between the pair being made via their uncanny resemblance and some aspects of their personality. It's clear that Renly's younger days spent in admiration allowed him to move from Robert's shadow into a position of aspiration and real ambition. And there's a quote from Catelyn who remembers seeing Renly when he was around Bran's age, so we'd guess this could have been in King's Landing for Robert and Cersei's wedding. Seeing Robert take a queen, solidifying himself as the king, and ruling over the Seven Kingdoms after nearly 300 years of the Targaryen dynasty, must have captured the young boy's imagination further, and his de facto father, Maester Cresson, does a great job of amalgamating Renly the boy and Renly the man in his thoughts here about Renly's rainbow guard. It was just the sort of notion that would appeal to Renly Baratheon, a splendid new order of knighthood with gorgeous new raiment to proclaim it, Even as a boy, Renly had loved bright colors and rich fabrics, and he had loved his games as well. Look at me, he would shout as he ran, laughing through the halls of Storm's End. Look at me, I'm a dragon, or look at me, I'm a wizard, or look at me, look at me, I'm the rain god. The bold little boy with wild black hair and laughing eyes was a man grown now, one in twenty, and still he played his games. Look at me, I'm a king. Crescent thought sadly. Oh, Renly, Renly, dear sweet child, do you know what you're doing? Would you care if you did? Is there anyone who cares for him but me? So that's a rather sad plea to no one from Crescent there. And we can't help wonder if the look at me part being repeated six times is meant to convey a need for attention in Renly that fits him into that baby sibling of the family stereotype quite nicely. 
The passage also plays well with the notion that Renly is still a boy at play when he crowns himself and also hints at a shallowness and vanity about his character. Two notes that are struck again when Catelyn visits his encampment at Bitterbridge. Yeah, and the reader really feels for Crescent too, the man who knows him most just stopping short of prophesying his doom. And next, we'll talk about the aftermath of the rebellion when Renly had been made Lord of Storm's End and his journey toward manhood takes shape. The youngest of Lord Stefan's three sons had grown into a man bold but heedless who acted from impulse rather than calculation. In that, as in so much else, Renly was like his brother, Robert and utterly unlike Stannis. At some point early on in Robert's tenure as king, he decided to make Renly Lord Paramount of the Stormlands and granted him Storm's End. For a young boy, this was a great honor, and so Renly saw firsthand the enormous power involved in leading from the Iron Throne. Although he can't have seen Robert very often, George has said that where Robert found Stannis prickly, he held some fondness for young Renly. Again, with the aforementioned admiration dynamic at play, imagine how Renly felt at being granted the Baratheon family seat as a third brother by his big brother, the king. Yeah, what an honour. But this manoeuvre did not sit well, to say the least, with the middle brother, Stannis. Robert had granted him, Dragonstone, a gloomy volcanic island instead of Storm's End. On the face of it, this was a raw deal for Stannis. He'd held Storm's End during the siege and so done his brotherly duty. However, despite being able to understand Stannis's point of view here, there may have been no ill intention in Robert's choice of brotherly gifts. George says this in a correspondence. Stannis always resented being given Dragonstone while Renly got Storm's End and took that as a slight. But it's not necessarily true that Robert meant it that way. The Targaryen heir apparent had always been titled Prince of Dragonstone. By making Stannis the Lord of Dragonstone, Robert had affirmed his brother's status as heir, which he was until Joff's birth a few years later. Robert could just as lawfully have retained both castles for his sons, made Joffrey Prince of Dragonstone and Tommen the Lord of Storm's End. Giving them to his brothers instead was another instance of his great but rather careless generosity. In spite of this, it caused a deep-rooted grievance between the brothers, with Stannis bitter at both parties. This is Cersei from A Clash of Kings. And Stannis has always felt he was cheated of Storm's End. The ancestral seat of House Baratheon, his by rights, if you knew how many times he came to Robert singing that same dull song in that gloomy, aggrieved tone he has. When Robert gave the place to Renly, Stannis clenched his jaw so tight I thought his teeth would shatter. And this grievance serves to deepen the conflict when Stannis and Renly become opponents in the books, not least because Storm's End gives Renly more power. Here's Crescent and Stannis. Your brother has been the Lord of Storm's End these past thirteen years. These lords are his sworn bannermen. His, Stannis broke in, when by rights they should be mine. 
I never asked for Dragonstone. I never wanted it. I took it because Robert's enemies were here, and he commanded me to root them out. I built his fleet and did his work, dutiful as a younger brother should be to an elder, as Renly should be to me. And what was Robert's thanks? He names me Lord of Dragonstone and gives Storm's End and its incomes to Renly. Storm's End belonged to House Baratheon for three hundred years. By rights, it should have passed to me when Robert took the Iron Throne. It was an old grievance, deeply felt, never more so than now. Yeah, that's from the Crescent Prologue. And later in the passage, we get this. Robert did you an injustice, Maester Crescent replied carefully. Yet he had sound reasons. Dragonstone had long been the seat of House Targaryen. He needed a man's strength to rule there, and Renly was but a child. He is a child still, Stannis declared, his anger ringing loud in the empty hall. A thieving child who thinks to snatch the crown off my brow. What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council and jests with little finger, and at tourneys he dons his splendid suit of armour and allows himself to be knocked off his horse by a better man. That is the sum of my brother Renly, who thinks he ought to be a king. I ask you, why did the gods inflict me with brothers? So, Stannis is describing Renly as a thief for claiming his crown, but the subtext is that he's always felt that way about him since Robert handed Renly Storm's End. Stannis also suggests Renly is still a child, which, as we've mentioned, is how Maester Crescent sees him too. And Renly, not afraid to torment his older brother in one way or another, taunts Stannis at their parley about Storm's End. When I make threats, you'll know it. If truth be told, I've never liked you, Stannis, but you are my own blood, and I have no wish to slay you. So, if it is Storm's End you want, take it, as a brother's gift. As Robert once gave it to me, I give it to you. It is not yours to give. It is mine by rights. So, we can see how this careless generosity from Robert causes great friction in the Baratheon family, and isn't this typical of Robert? It's interesting to know George's comments that Robert could have lawfully, and maybe should have, reserved Storm's End for his second son. Viewed in that way, Stannis' grievance seems based on sheer petulance and envy. Anyway, the tensions over Storm's End not only underpin the growing discord in the brotherly relations, setting up dynamics, particularly in A Clash of Kings, but also serve to give Renly a great place to become a noble lord. Yeah, under Maester Cresson's supervision, Renly was lord from a young age over a large area and a decent population. Much like Rob and John at Winterfell, he would have benefited from being at the centre of a large specialised retinue, where he would have received a fine education in everything from reading and writing to combat to learning to rule over a vassalage and forming alliances and so on. All the time with Robert's example setting a precedent of excellence and high expectation. And when Renly came of age at 16, he went on a Lord's Progress. 
We think a lord's progress probably has two historical bases, and if you combine them, they add up to what George is conveying here. First of all, there's royal progress, which is defined as a tour of a kingdom by a monarch and his or her retinue or entourage. And then we have grand tours. In and around the 1600s, this was primarily British nobility and wealthy landed gentry, and they used to go on grand tours when they came of age. They travelled through Europe in a trip that was essentially an educational rite of passage. So if you mix a grand tour and the royal progress, the sum might be close to Renly's Lord's Progress. Yeah, essentially it was going around visiting all the important people in the area. And it's on this trip that he went to Tarth and met Brienne of Tarth, upon whom he left a lasting impression. House Tarth is a vassal of Storm's End, and so Renly was visiting as its liege. Brienne had been betrothed twice by that time, including the match to Red Ronnet Connington, who emotionally wounded her by giving her a beautiful rose whilst ending their betrothal. The maid of Tarth was always ill-suited to the game of courtship, big, cumbersome, and unconventional, yet with a fragile heart. By the time Renly arrived on Tarth, she seems to have been well acquainted with rejection and cruelty from the opposite sex, so much so that she came to expect it, and we dare say she was anticipating some form of public humiliation from her liege lord here. Yeah, and here's the account we get of their meeting from Brienne. Renly Baratheon had been more than a king to her. She had loved him since first he came to Tarth, on his leisurely Lord's Progress, to mark his coming of age. Her father welcomed him with a feast and commanded her to attend. Elsewise, she would have hidden in a room like some wounded beast. She had been no older than Sansa, more afraid of sniggers than of swords. They will know about the rose, she told Lord Selwyn. They will laugh at me. But the Evenstar would not relent. And Renly Baratheon had shown her every courtesy, as if she were a proper maid and pretty. He even danced with her, and in his arms she'd felt graceful, and her feet had floated across the floor. Later, others begged a dance of her because of his example. From that day forth, she wanted only to be close to Lord Renly, to serve him and protect him. Okay, so after coming to know Brienne, this is quite a moving story, and there are a number of points to be made. First of all, this was a great display of decency from Renly, setting a fine example for others to follow in the treatment of a girl who was simply unconventional. Yeah, next we can view it slightly more critically. Renly was very nice on the one hand, but he was also simply doing his job as liege in keeping his vassal, Lord Selwyn, happy. From this angle, we can see that Brienne might be getting a bit carried away with her admiration of Renly, leading to a lifetime of misplaced adoration. This might not be so dissimilar to Sansa's view of Loras, and the parallel brings interesting comparisons between these two ladies who are ostensibly polar opposites. 
Finally, we can wonder if, while Renly was doing a good deed out of duty, that inwardly he didn't enjoy it or Brienne's company. In Clash, Renly seems outwardly at least to like Brienne and respect her. However, in A Storm of Swords, Loras tells Jamie, Renly thought she was absurd, a woman dressed in man's mail pretending to be a knight. I asked him why he kept her close if he thought her so grotesque. He said that all his other knights wanted things of him, castles or honors or riches, but all that Brienne wanted was to die for him. So was Renly a better man than those who had spurned her in her youth, thinking of her as absurd and grotesque according to Loras? It gives a different slant on the dance and kind of paints Renly as a rather superficial, insincere and shallow kind of hero in that scene, possibly. Charges which are aimed at him through the books by people like Donald Noy, who says he's copper, bright and shiny, pretty to look at, but not worth all that much at the end of the day. Without Renly's point of view, it's impossible the speculator conclude any further about the dancing scene, but there's some food for thought, remembering that we experience the story through the bias of Brienne's mind. And another point about Renly's Lord's progress, from what little information we have, is that Brienne describes it as leisurely. Yeah, it puts us in mind of a largest retinue, travelling in relative luxury, at Renly's own pace. That's what leisurely says to us, at least. This, of course, aligns with the leisurely pace of Renly's march on King's Landing, and we did wonder if, with all the comments about Renly still being a boy in mind, whether Renly saw his attempt to conquer kind of like an extension of his lord's progress. And the final thing we think we know about his lord's progress is that Renly went to Dorne. We find out from Arianne that he visited Sunspear at some point and that she tried to seduce him and he didn't respond. But with Arianne's account of the meeting, our best guess is that this was during the so-called Lord's Progress. And our final observations about Renly's time as Lord are that it was then that he met Loras and also that Edric Storm was sent to live with him. In A Storm of Swords, we find out that Loras, around four years Renly's junior, came to Storm's End to squire for Renly, showing both roots of collaboration between Renly and the Tyrells, and also of a forbidden romance, which we'll be discussing in depth in a future Loras episode. For now, it's worth keeping in mind that somewhere along the way, Renly and Loras began a relationship, and it seems like a sincere and genuine romance, which must have affected Renly's decisions and leadership going into the main timeline. Yes, a truly defining element of his life, we think, one we look forward to fleshing out in the future. And as for Edric Storm... He's the embodiment of that enmity between Robert and Stannis that we discussed earlier. The boy was conceived in Stannis' own wedding bed by Robert. As his mother was a Florent and nobly born, Stannis sent him to live with Renly, perhaps symbolizing a triangle between the Baratheon brothers, with Robert the father, Stannis the eternally aggrieved middle child, and Renly the custodian of Robert's legacy. Edric becomes pertinent to the plot in A Storm of Swords when he is the focus of Stannis' drive to take Storm's End for his own shadowy purposes. 
Renly appeared to be largely oblivious to Edric's significance to Stannis, as he had apparently been to the details of Edric's upbringing, and would probably have laughed at Stannis's monumental efforts to gain the boy back so that he could parade his Baratheon looks as proof of Cersei's infidelity. And we'll be looking at how seriously Renly took Stannis' claims a bit later. And at some point during his manhood, Renly was appointed to Robert's small council as Master of Laws and kept his place there into the events of A Game of Thrones. And before we move on, we just want to finish up with Renly's age and description. He seems to be around 21 at the start of the books, but there are differing accounts and his timeline is slightly shaky perhaps both from unreliable narrators and even an unreliable author who also changes the colour of Renly's eyes. <laughs> yeah, Sansa thinks of his laughing green eyes, yet Ned and others think of them as deep blue. We think George, on the one hand, wanted Renly's eyes to match the dramatic green of his famous armour, but on the other, he was trying to establish Baratheons as having that dominant black hair and blue eyes for Joffrey's lineage reveal. Somewhere he tripped himself up, and when fans pointed this mistake out, George replied with some humour and noted amusement that Renly's eyes are in fact blue-green, and they change colour depending on what he wears. And to summarise Renly's appearance, it's said he looks like a young Robert, although perhaps not so muscular. Here's a good description from Catelyn. Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome, long of limb and broad of shoulder, with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile. So, overall, we've portrayed Renly as an inspired and ambitious young man who learned from a young age to take what he wants. His warmth, charisma, and congeniality are evident, but are undermined by questions about his sincerity, superficiality, and frivolousness, all of which combine for an intriguing and very human character. Up next, we'll take a look at Renly from the time we first meet him in Sansa's point of view at Derry, up through the events following Robert's death. Your helmet bears golden antlers, my lord. The stag is the sigil of the royal house. King Robert has two brothers. By your extreme youth, you can only be Renly Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End and counselor to the king, and so I name you. By the age of 20, Renly had been appointed as his brother Robert's Master of Laws. As such, he sat on the small council and would have been in charge of the dungeons of the Red Keep and apparently the City Watch as well, making him perhaps the Westerosi equivalent to a modern Attorney General, the person in charge of the enforcement of law and order. These duties will be significant to our analysis shortly. And past Masters of Law include another king's brother, Prince Daemon Targaryen, who briefly served his brother Viserys I before being succeeded by Lord Lionel Strong. Lord Lionel was a famed warrior who had forged six links in a maester's chain before being granted the lordship of Harrenhal. 
His exhaustive knowledge of law made him ideally suited to the post, from which he eventually succeeded as Hand of the King when Queen Alicent Hightower's father Otto overstepped himself in the matter of the succession. And Lionel and his son Harwin, who was the rumoured father of Rhaenyra Targaryen's three eldest sons, were killed in a fire at Harrenhal many years before Viserys himself died and the succession became a contested issue. At the time of Viserys' death, Lord Jasper Wilde was the Master of Laws and, as a strong proponent of strict agnatic succession, he was a vocal supporter of Queen Alicent and Aegon II during the Dance of the Dragons. What these past masters have in common was their power in the realm and their influence over the key issues of their day. As we'll see, Renly's influence would be a different sort and his actual power during his brother's reign may have been somewhat hampered by the ascendancy of his sister-in-law's family. Yeah, because in spite of his prestigious appointment and the fact that he had also been named Lord of Storm's End, according to Jamie early in A Game of Thrones, Robert can barely stomach his brothers. George has been asked to comment on this very quote and had this to say. There are many different kinds of love. Robert was dutiful toward his brothers and no doubt loved them in a way, but he didn't necessarily like them. His relations with Stannis were always prickly. Renly was the baby of the family and spent little time in Robert's company until he was old enough to come to court. I suspect Robert was fond of the boy, but not especially close to him. But while Robert's distance may come as no surprise in the person of Stannis, who seems to be the antithesis of everything Robert represents, is an interesting note for Renly, who is noted time and again to be so like his elder brother in his youth that one might think Robert would be especially fond of him. But given the extreme change Ned notes in his friend, we wonder if perhaps there's an element of self-loathing or resentment of the changes time has wrought upon him in Robert's apparent distance from his youngest brother. Yeah, imagine being a middle-aged man running to fat and dissolution and constantly being reminded that your handsome and popular younger brother was just like you used to be. It would probably become a bit grating after a while, especially if the comparison is mainly superficial. With his attention to matters of fashion, and especially his apparent lack of excellence in the martial arts, Renly's actually less like Robert than Stannis is. Right, here's Ned's first arrival at a small council meeting. You must forgive me, but sometimes you look the very image of your brother Robert. A poor copy, Renly said with a shrug. Though much better dressed, Littlefinger quipped, Lord Renly spends more on clothing than half the ladies of the court. And then later Stannis would fume. He sits in council and jests with Littlefinger, and at tourneys he dons his splendid suit of armour and allows himself to be knocked off his horse by a better man. And so, by Renly's own admission, he's a poor copy of Robert, and this self-deprecation goes hand-in-hand with his habit of laughing at himself, such as at Derry when Sansa identifies him as the king's youngest brother based upon his youth, Sir Barristan Selmy chimes in, By his extreme youth, he can only be a prancing jackanapes, and so I name him. And it says, There was general laughter, led by Lord Renly himself. 
Yeah, Renly's laughter and general lack of regard for formalities is remarked upon frequently, such as when he laughed at Joffrey for losing his sword to Arya, telling his nephew, Perchance later you'll tell me how a nine-year-old girl the size of a wet rat managed to disarm you with a broom handle and throw your sword in a river. Or in council meetings where his laughter seems to be a constant. At Littlefinger's quips, at Robert's quirks of personality and at Stannis's pedantry. He tells the story of when Stannis proposed to outlaw brothels with great amusement. For what it's worth, from a structural perspective, this story is placed right before Ned discovers that Stannis himself had visited a brothel with John Arryn. And Renly also takes great delight in explaining the workings of the council and his brother's mind to Ned, telling him, All this business of coin and crops and justice bores my royal brother to tears, so it falls to us to govern the realm. He does send us a command from time to time. And my royal brother loves tournaments and feasts, and he loathes what he calls counting coppers. So that Sansa POV at Darry is actually the first time we see Renly. Upon his arrival, Sansa thinks of him as the handsomest man she had ever set eyes upon. A lengthy description of his appearance and his armour and his genial, easygoing demeanour gives us the gist of Renly as we'll come to know him. It seems appropriate that Sansa, the dreamy young girl who worships knights and heroes and is highly susceptible to superficial beauty, is the character whose perception defines our early viewpoint. And Kat's later opinion that Renly and his knights were, quote, knights of summer, pairs nicely with this though as a more wise and nuanced assessment. And in support of that overall impression of geniality, weeks later at the hand's tourney, Renly fell to the hound with a smile and the proverbial shrug, probably the attitude Stannis was referring to months later as he fumed on Dragonstone. About his defeat, it says, Renly was enhorsed so violently that he seemed to fly backward off his charger, legs in the air. His head hit the ground with an audible crack that made the crowd gasp. But it was just the golden antler on his helm. One of the tines had snapped off beneath him. When Lord Renly climbed to his feet, the commons cheered wildly, for King Robert's handsome young brother was a great favourite. He handed the broken tine to his conqueror with a gracious bow. The hound snorted and tossed the broken antler into the crowd, where the commons began to punch and claw over the little bit of gold, until Lord Renly walked out among them and restored the peace. So it's noted that he was popular with the small folk, and we see him try to soothe Robert's anger with a smile when Cersei provoked him at the feast afterwards. But in other areas, we also see that Renly's general affability masks some very different personality traits. Yeah, for all his laughter, he could be stern when exercising his duties. As we said, as Master of Laws, he was most likely in charge of the city watch and law enforcement in general. And when Jano Slint complained of the chaos in the city leading up to the hand's tourney, it was Renly who told him sharply, if you cannot keep the king's peace, Janos, perhaps the city watch should be commanded by someone who can. And then we also see a rather callous and self-serving side of Renly when he gives his opinion on Daenerys Targaryen. 
The matter seems simple enough to me. We ought to have had Viserys and his sister killed years ago, but his grace, my brother, made the mistake of listening to John Arryn. And in spite of Ned's reply, mercy is never a mistake, Lord Renly, followed by an appeal to Robert's past self, Renly would declare she must be killed, and that motion would carry the day. And by now it should be apparent that Renly has a secret agenda of his own. Ned had been bemused when Renly showed him a painted miniature of Marjorie Tyrell and asked him if the girl looked like Liana. And in a conversation about Laura's Tyrell, Robert had mentioned, Renly says he has this sister, a maid of 14, lovely as a dawn. Well, looking back at Cersei's words to Jamie back at Winterfell, how long till he decides to put me aside for some new Lyanna, we can see a pattern emerge. Exactly what that pattern is was confirmed for the reader when Arya overheard Varys speaking with Illyrio in the dungeons of the Red Keep. The girl is a maid of fourteen, sweet and beautiful and tractable, and Lord Renly and Sir Loras intend that Robert should bed her, wed her, and make a new queen. Since the plan clearly involved taking advantage of Robert's well-known lingering love for Lyanna Stark, we have plenty of reason to believe Renly is actively scheming against the Lannisters. And incidentally, Renly confirmed that was the case in A Clash of Kings when he told Stannis, A year ago I was scheming to make the girl Robert's queen. Anyway, such a bold plan would obviously insult and enrage the proud Lord Tywin, who could hardly be expected to take lightly not only the insult to his daughter, but the disinheriting of his grandchildren. So, combined with the hint from Cersei's remarks to Jaime at Winterfell that she may have had some inkling of Renly's plan, we think that it could really only have originated with the knowledge of Cersei's treason and the illegitimacy of her children. And since we strongly suspect, based upon later comments by Varys to Tyrion, that Stannis was alerted to the incest by Littlefinger, it's reasonable to think Renly was as well. That Littlefinger was well aware of the secret is evident in Ned's point of view as Robert lay dying when he met with Baelish and informed him of it. Littlefinger's reply, shocking, he said in a tone that suggested he was not shocked at all, speaks volumes about just how much he already knew, and it's very easy to imagine how he might have been motivated by that knowledge. Yeah, that Renly and Peter were friendly was hinted at by Stannis in Clash when he angrily says, What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council and jests with Littlefinger. Could those jests have been Littlefinger's attempt to ingratiate himself with a potential future ruler? Or equally possible, Renly's early efforts to plot himself to the throne? Certainly, given Robert's well-known dislike of Stannis, and the fact Robert had given Storm's End to Renly, either of the men may have harboured some hopes of Renly being named Robert's heir if Cersei's children were disinherited. Alternatively, Renly may also have simply wanted to end Lannister ascendancy in the capital. As Peter Baelish would tell Ned, there's small love lost between Lord Renly and the Lannisters. Or perhaps Renly suspected Cersei's plans to rid herself of Robert, which the reader was alerted to all those months ago at Winterfell. 
what happens when Robert dies and Joff takes the throne, and the sooner that comes to pass, the safer we'll all be. Certainly when that came to pass, Renly's position at court would have been untenable. As Varys would tell Ned in the Black Cells, Robert was becoming unruly and the Queen needed to be rid of him to free her hands to deal with his brothers. They are quite a pair, Stannis and Renly, the Iron Gauntlet and the Silk Glove. But interestingly, we know from Cersei's own point of view following Tywin's death, when she was thinking of all the difficulties past hands of the king had caused her, that Ned Stark's meddling had, quote, forced her to rid herself of Robert sooner than she would have liked, before she could deal with his pestilential brothers. So, a slight contradiction there from Cersei to what Varys had told Ned, but in the end it came to the same thing. Cersei fully intended to rid herself of all three Baratheon brothers. So, whether kingship is what Renly craved, or simply preserving his own life and status as Lord of Storm's End, and watching Cersei make her moves from the sidelines wouldn't have been in his own best interest. Yeah, for sure. And so, besides the fact that Renly and Littlefinger are often noted to be in each other's company, and are friendly with each other, there seem to be numerous points of intersection in their goals. When Robert lay dying, it was Renly who urged Ned to seize Cersei's children to prevent her acting. Here's the passage. That letter, he leaned close. Was it the Regency? Has my brother named you protector? He did not wait for a reply. My lord, I have thirty men in my personal guard, and other friends beside, knights and lords. Give me an hour, and I can put a hundred swords in your hand. And what should I do with a hundred swords, my lord? Strike! Now, while the castle sleeps! Renly looked back at Sir Boros again, and dropped his voice to an urgent whisper. We must get Joffrey away from his mother, and take him in hand. Protector or no, the man who holds the king holds the kingdom. We should seize Myrcella and Tommen as well. Once we have her children, Cersei will not dare oppose us. The council will confirm you as Lord Protector and make Joffrey your ward. Ned regarded him coldly. Robert is not dead yet. The gods may spare him. If not, I shall convene the council to hear his final words and consider the matter of the succession. But I will not dishonor his last hours on earth by shedding blood in his halls and dragging frightened children from their beds. Lord Renly took a step back taut as a bowstring. Every moment you delay gives Cersei another moment to prepare. By the time Robert dies, it may be too late for both of us. Then we should pray that Robert does not die. Small chance of that, said Renly. Sometimes the gods are merciful. The Lannisters are not. Lord Renly turned away and went back across the moat to the tower where his brother lay dying. So Renly clearly saw what Cersei's next move would be and wanted to forestall her with Ned's help. But when Ned refused and Robert died, Renly fled the city with Loras Tyrell and the armed men he had recently offered Ned in a move that can only be termed self-preservation. Varys would tell Ned... He took his leave through a postern gate an hour before dawn, accompanied by Sir Loras Tyrell and some fifty retainers. When last seen, they were galloping south in some haste, no doubt bound for Storm's End or Highgarden. 
But it turns out Renly wasn't the only one urging an alliance. Shortly after Ned spoke with Renly and confirmed that Robert had named him protector, Littlefinger came to his chambers. He revealed that he knew Ned had been named protector. As we mentioned in a Littlefinger episode, he certainly could have learned that from Renly, although he in fact hinted at Varys being his source. In any case, he suggested to Ned that the Tyrells and Redwines would oppose Stannis and urged him to make peace with Cersei while secretly allying with Renly. Yeah, Littlefinger's argument went like this. Joffrey is but twelve, and Robert gave you the regency, my lord. You are the hand of the king and protector of the realm. The power is yours, Lord Stark. All you need do is reach out and take it. Make your peace with the Lannisters. Release the imp. Wed Joffrey to your Sansa. Wed your younger girl to Prince Tommen, and your heir to Marcella. It will be four years before Joffrey comes of age. By then, he will look to you as a second father. And if not, well, four years is a good long while, my lord. Long enough to dispose of Lord Stannis. Then, should Joffrey prove troublesome, we can reveal his little secret and put Lord Renly on the throne. So, right there, did Baelish tip his hand. That casual suggestion of putting Renly on the throne conveniently bypassing or disposing of Stannis, may be exactly what the two had in mind all along during conferences hidden by jests and laughter. Alternatively, it could have been Littlefinger's own perception of the option that would be in his best interest. But when Ned predictably chose Stannis, Littlefinger offered to obtain the support of the Gold Cloaks. Well, it's made very clear later on by Tyrion and even later by Stannis, that Janos Slint was in the employ of Littlefinger. Knowing that, and in light of Slint's betrayal, in retrospect, it's easy to point the finger of blame for Ned's arrest at Littlefinger. George has acknowledged the roles of everyone from Sansa to Cersei to Ned himself, as well as Littlefinger, Varys, and Slint. What we find interesting here is the connection between Renly and Slint. That's right. As Master of Laws, Lord Renly would have essentially been Janos Slint's boss. While Littlefinger sat in Ned's study and told him the watch would, quote, follow the man who pays them, we can't help but wonder at the twist of fate that had the watch so easily betray Lord Stark to the Lannisters effectively putting all hope of an easy succession by Stannis out of the picture. Surely Littlefinger found it profitable in the moment to appear loyal to the Lannisters, but since Peter Baelish would have been anathema to a King Stannis, Baelish would have also found it profitable to make sure Ned's support of Stannis came to nothing, while the Lannisters considerably weakened their own position by arresting and executing Lord Stark. Who stood to benefit the most from that circumstance? Besides Baelish himself, the prime beneficiary was of course Janos Slint's boss, Renly. This isn't to say that Renly was complicit in Slint's betrayal of Ned Stark, He had fled the city by then, after all, but more that Slint may have been aware of which course of action stood to benefit his patrons most. And Renly also had a known connection, possibly even a friendship, with Littlefinger, who claimed responsibility for the betrayal. 
Given Baelish's obviously unsavory relationship with Slint, at the very least there may have been a history of Renly looking the other way while Littlefinger plied his extra-legal trade in political appointments. Yeah, in our first Littlefinger episode, we discussed the fact that he had apparently sold offices to tradesmen who were taking loans from the Crown in a political scheme that reeks of graft. Basically, through the practice, Littlefinger was able to direct Crown revenues into his own pockets. That those revenues may have actually been the product of high-risk loans that seriously endangered the status of the Royal Exchequer not only complicates the issue, but adds another layer of probable corruption. Right, and not only that, but in a Jamie chapter following Tyrion's escape, we learned that the chief jailer of the Red Keep had purchased his office from Littlefinger. But the chief jailer is another office that apparently was under Lord Renly's jurisdiction. So if Renly either knew about Littlefinger's casual enterprise and looked the other way, or if he just didn't care enough to follow the trivial details of who was appointed and when and where and why, it's highly probable Baelish would have seen the benefit to himself of a sovereign Renly, as opposed to, say, Stannis or even Tywin acting on Joffrey's behalf. Renly is, in fact, the only one of the claimants to the throne, following Robert's death, whose reign would benefit Peter Baelish, and that's why Littlefinger would have favoured his claim and plotted on his behalf. And since Stannis makes it clear in A Storm of Swords that General Slint was equally guilty of selling appointments, as a likely accomplice of Baelish's, he would no doubt be similarly motivated in the matter of the succession. Now, getting back to Renly, in the aftermath of Robert's death and Renly's flight from the city, many rumours arose in the capital and around the realm about his involvement in his brother's death. Yeah, at Winterfell they would hear that, quote, Lord Eddard had fled south with the king's wicked brother Renly. In King's Landing, Arya hears, quote, that her father had murdered King Robert and been slain in turn by Lord Renly. Others insisted that Renly had killed the king in a drunken quarrel between the brothers. Another man says, It was his own brother did him in, that Renly, him with his gold antlers. And then Sansa tells Joffrey in court that Ned's actions following Robert's death were because they must have lied to him, Lord Renly, or Lord Stannis, or, or somebody. And while she wasn't Repeating a rumour there, in open court, such words could certainly become the foundation of one, possibly feeding the potent stew of half-truths and conjecture that was swirling in and around the city. And what all of this proves is that from the point of view of the small folk, and possibly even the court, Renly's flight from the city was a potent indicator of guilt. And while his general popularity stood him in good stead later on, as Joffrey and Cersei became increasingly unpopular, in the aftermath of Robert's death, the general confusion brought about by Cersei's virtual coup led to an opportunity for the Lannister camp to take advantage of a temporary backlash against Robert's brother. But in spite of the confusion, the rumours and stories came to naught. 
It turned out Renly was perennially popular with the small folk, and before too long, many of them would be secretly hoping for the handsome Lord of Storm's End and would-be king to relieve them of Joffrey's and Cersei's rule. And when that hated imp arrived to fill Lord Tywin's shoes, popular opinion of the Lannisters would hit a new low. Yeah, it would. But in the meantime, let's move south to Highgarden to catch up with Renly. In a Tyrion chapter, near the end of A Game of Thrones, it's Tywin who fills in the story of what Renly had done following his flight from King's Landing via a report from Lord Varys. The eunuch has heard whispers from the south. Renly Baratheon wed Marjorie Tyrell at Highgarden this fortnight past, and now he has claimed the crown. The bride's father and brothers have bent the knee and sworn him their swords. Well, obviously this was bad news for Tywin, who had his hands full with Rob Stark at the time. But Renly was no lightning lord, as we'll see, and he tarried at Highgarden for some weeks building up his army. In spite of Stannis's pleas to the Stormlords, not one of them agreed to support the elder brother over Lord Renly. And with Mace Tyrell as his first vassal, many of the Reacher Lords soon followed, with the notable exception of Paxter Redwine, who refrained from taking sides as his sons were hostages in King's Landing. And by the time Tyrion returned to King's Landing from the battlefields of the Riverlands, we hear, Renly has marched from Highgarden. He's making his way up the Rose Road with all his strength behind him. While Tyrion later thinks of his progress as glacial, we'll shortly learn that his army is massive, surely the largest in the kingdom by a wide margin, and thus is causing no small apprehension for Queen Cersei in King's Landing. And early in A Clash of Kings, we get the opportunity for a POV look at Renly's alliance, his huge army, and the progress of not only his march on the crown lands, but his reign as well. We'll pick it up in the next section with the discussion of Renly's claim, and Catelyn arriving at Renly's encampment at Bitterbridge as an envoy from her son, Rob. Sirs and ladies of the Seven Kingdoms, with news of Joffrey Lannister's illegitimacy, the realm must choose another king. We hereby declare for Renly Baratheon over his miserable brother Stannis. It is high time we had a king to love, which puts Stannis at the very bottom of the order. King Renly will govern the kingdoms with a silk glove and his policies will include free peaches for all, slow luxurious marches towards any battles, and the most diverse Kingsguard in history. When he's not praying with Sir Loras Tyrell, our devout King Renly will be besting the miserable Stannis at having the biggest army, fashion, looking like rebellion era Robert, having an attractive wife who doesn't sport a moustache, and not cutting the fingers of his only friend. So, side with King Renly, because who can stomach Stannis? Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. King Renly is the crowned and anointed Lord of all the Seven Kingdoms. His grace is encamped with his host near Bitterbridge, where the Rose Road crosses the Manda. When Renly declared himself king, he overstepped many centuries of law and tradition regarding the inheritance of lands and titles. Like Damon Blackfire before him, Renly Baratheon threatened to upset the accepted order of things, literally pitting brother against brother in a power struggle centered on rumors of bastardy and claims of superior suitability for kingship. The first Blackfire Rebellion essentially boiled down to a persistent belief that Damon Blackfire would be a better king than his studious half-brother Darren, who neither looked the part nor lived up to the ideal of a warrior king which has a certain parallel with Renly's own belief that the crown will suit me as it never suited Robert and would not suit Stannis. Yeah, it does. And we shouldn't forget the troubles that arose in the realm following the Blackfire pretensions. People like Barristan and Stannis certainly didn't. And Catelyn would comment that the Blackfire pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations, indicating the long reach such a disruption could have. Of course, Renly's own rebellion came a bare generation after his brother Robert's. But while Renly was careful to draw comparisons between the two, in point of fact, and on the face of it, Renly had very little legitimate cause to put himself forward. As we'll see, his claim was problematic on a couple of fronts, and by his own admission seemed to be based almost entirely on the disingenuous and somewhat arrogant assertion that he was better liked, and thus better suited to kingship than his elder brother Stannis. And at Riverrun, Rob Stark was troubled by the implications of Renly's declaration. Speaking in council about Joffrey's execution of Ned and Renly's claim, he said, "'That makes Joffrey evil. I do not know that it makes Renly king.' Joffrey is still Robert's eldest true-born son, so the throne is rightfully his by all the laws of the realm. Were he to die, and I mean to see that he does, he has a younger brother. Tommen is next in line after Joffrey. How could it be Lord Renly? He's Robert's younger brother. 
Bran can't be Lord of Winterfell before me, and Renly can't be king before Lord Stannis. Sir Rob very succinctly outlined the case against Renly's claim. He's technically fourth in line, behind Joffrey, Tommen and Stannis. Even if Robert's Lannister children are ruled out, Rob accedes, as his father did before him, though critically without the knowledge of why those children should be ruled out, then Stannis still has the better claim. Nonetheless, Rob would soon send his mother as an envoy to King Renly to negotiate an alliance against the Lannisters. So the question has to be asked, why did Renly declare himself king and what did he expect would happen when he did so? The obvious answer as far as Joffrey and Tommen go is that he was aware of Cersei's incest and the bastardy of her children, as we discussed in the last segment. Which leaves the question, if Renly had planned his bid for the throne since well before Robert's death, as we alluded to, did he expect his elder brother Stannis to simply bend the knee, or did he anticipate a struggle by force? And how did he justify ignoring Stannis' superior claim? Well, possible answers to many of these issues can be found in Catelyn's chapter at Bitterbridge, when she has the opportunity to have a few private words with the young man who would be king. He begins by telling Cat about the night Robert died, how he offered his swords to Ned and urged him to seize Cersei's children and the Regency. Rendy claims, had he listened, he would be regent today. There would have been no need for me to claim the throne. So, pointing the finger of blame at Ned seems not a little bit manipulative, and besides, is ever so slightly at odds, not only with Renly's presumed awareness of Cersei's incest, which he's doing a fine job denying knowledge of so far, and more on that shortly, but also with what Littlefinger suggested to Ned that same night. Remember, he said... It will be four years before Joffrey comes of age. By then, he'll look to you as a second father, and if not, well, four years is a good long while, my lord, long enough to dispose of Lord Stannis. Then, should Joffrey prove troublesome, we can reveal his little secret and put Lord Renly on the throne. So remember we suggested that by all appearances, Renly and Littlefinger were in league with each other, and certainly Cersei knew that Robert's brothers were a threat and planned to rid herself of them as well as Robert. Renly, of course, was keenly aware of this, telling Cat, I lack the strength to act alone, so when Lord Eddard turned me away, I had no choice but to flee. Had I stayed, I knew the Queen would see to it that I did not long outlive my brother. And it would appear that Stannis was equally aware of the threat from Cersei, since he had spent the months between John Arryn's and Robert's deaths at Dragonstone, avoiding all communication with the court, gathering an army, and building his fleet. But given Littlefinger's words to Ned, long enough to dispose of Lord Stannis, perhaps the threat to Stannis wasn't limited to Cersei. Yeah, it could be, and with regard to his own army... After showing her the nearly 80,000 men encamped around Lord Caswell's keep, Renly has this to say to Catelyn. Mace Tyrell remains at Highgarden with another 10,000. I have a strong garrison holding Storm's End, and soon enough the Dornishmen will join me with all their power. 
and never forget my brother Stannis, who holds Dragonstone and commands the lords of the Narrow Sea. Yeah, and having arrived at the question of Stannis, Cat was quick to point out that it would seem you're the one who's forgotten Stannis. But Renly is dismissive. His reply serves to outline his essential conception of kingship, at least the one he would publicly proclaim. Here's the exchange. His claim, you mean? Renly laughed. Let's be blunt, my lady. Stannis would make an appalling king, nor is he like to ever become one. Men respect Stannis, even fear him, but precious few have ever loved him. He's still your elder brother. If either of you can be said to have a right to the Iron Throne, it must be Lord Stannis. Renly shrugged. Tell me, what right did my brother Robert ever have to the Iron Throne? He did not wait for an answer. Oh, there was talk of blood ties between Baratheon and Targaryen, of weddings a hundred years past, of second sons and elder daughters. No one but the maesters care about any of it. Robert won the throne with his warhammer. He swept a hand across the campfires that burned from horizon to horizon. Well, there is my claim, as good as Robert's ever was. Yeah, that's a very rich passage that gets to the heart of Renly and his viewpoint of his brothers. In essence, it would seem Renly either believes or is hoping that Stannis will simply cease to become an obstacle. He is clearly modelling himself on Robert, as we've mentioned, although whether through actual admiration or a more cynical opportunism is still up for debate. And perhaps he hoped Stannis would support him, not forgetting that Stannis had supported Robert over King Ares. Yeah, as Stannis would tell Davos, if you only knew, that was a hard choosing, my blood or my liege, my brother or my king. It illustrates that he did have a kind of family loyalty that could, in the right circumstances, outweigh his sense of duty. But getting back to Renly's words to Cat, he essentially professes a belief in sovereignty based upon ability and acclamation, which, while it's at odds with Westerosi monarchy since the conquest, may have some precedence in Westerosi history prior to the Targaryen unification of the Seven Kingdoms. We're thinking specifically of the modern descendants of the First Men, the free folk beyond the wall and the clans of the Mountains of the Moon, for whom merit or might seem to be the de facto methods of choosing a leader. Certainly, inheritance doesn't seem to come into play much, except possibly with the Thens, who are the only wildling clan noted to have quote-unquote lords. Yeah, since we see it in their modern descendants, it seems reasonable to think that a system of leaders chosen on merit existed amongst the first men. And we find examples of this in our own history with Roman emperors whose rule was validated by their control of Rome's mighty army and by the approval of the Senate. While succession was often familial with the Antonines making a practice of adopting suitable heirs to make it appear even more so, if there was no clear heir or even a popular or suitable one, the army could and did declare their own candidate. The history of the empire is littered with emperors who were declared by the legions. This practice of selecting a ruler that was acceptable to the upper echelons continued through the 18th century in Europe. 
the central and largest part of which was known as the Holy Roman Empire, following the reign of the Frankish monarch Charlemagne in the 9th century, and which engaged in a practice of electing an emperor intermittently through many centuries. While dynasties could and did control the succession, as in the Roman Empire having the support of the army and the principal magnates, who could also be kings or princes in their own right, was also essential. And so Renly's assertions about his large army and Stannis' unpopularity, not to mention his belief in his own imminent suitability for the role, contributed to his seemingly unorthodox, though not entirely unprecedented, claim. And regarding Renly's opinion of himself, when a fan mentioned to George, I get the idea that he really thinks he deserves to be king and that he will be a great king. George replied, he does. Renly was not modest. So there you have it. Renly is certainly not retiring when it comes to declaring that he is the lord best suited to rule the Seven Kingdoms. He wasn't shy about pointing out his advantage in numbers, and he made assumptions about what that initial advantage might gain him in terms of future alliances such as Dawn, Stannis, and even Rob Stark. Well, to be fair, there was also an element of genuine charisma at play, as there had been with his brother. When Cat observed him at Bitterbridge, she thought, small wonder the lords gather round him with such fervour. He is Robert come again. And later on, she would note, The king enjoyed his food and drink. That was plain to see. Yet he seemed neither glutton nor drunkard. He laughed often and well, and spoke amiably to high-born lords and lowly serving wenches alike. So a man of genial disposition, who was friendly to all, and the very image of his brother Robert, beloved of the commons, as we saw, and sure to be open-handed with his subjects, even as Robert had been. And just as Rob Stark had been proclaimed King in the North by the acclamation of his lords, so did Renly expect to be proclaimed King of Westeros when he swept into King's Landing and sat himself on the Iron Throne with the help of his enormous army. That he was a champion of a possible new model of kingship for Westeros is evident in what he said to Catelyn next. If your son supports me as his father supported Robert, he'll not find me ungenerous. I will gladly confirm him in all his lands, titles, and honors. He can rule in Winterfell as he pleases. He can even go on calling himself King in the North if he likes, so long as he bends the knee and does me homage as his overlord. King is only a word, but fealty, loyalty, service, those I must have. And if he will not give them to you, my lord... I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. Three hundred years ago, a Stark king knelt to Aegon the dragon when he saw he could not hope to prevail. That was wisdom. Your son must be wise as well. Once he joins me, this war is good as done. And while we don't get to see what comes of this particular avenue of discussion, as the messenger from Storm's End arrived with news of Stannis' siege at that very moment, we can see that Renly was willing to discuss an alliance with Rob, that he even expected it would aid in his own ultimate victory. And from the flip side, we can only assume that such a proposal was the reason for Catelyn's long journey to Bitterbridge and subsequent even longer journey to Storm's End itself. 
But we shouldn't forget that there was also a threat to Rob inherent in that statement. And now, getting back to the statement, Cat justifying his claim to the throne. George has been asked about those words referring to the Baratheon connection to the Targaryen dynasty versus Robert's Warhammer. His reply, I think you're putting a lot more weight on this slender branch than it can bear. Renly was a carefree and careless soul, and he was speaking in broad generalizations here. He cared almost nothing for the legal basis of his brother's claim, as the context makes clear. So far as he was concerned, the only thing that mattered was the size of your army. Lady Gwynne, was that the master of laws not caring anything for the law? Yo, boy, I think you have it in a nutshell there. All right. So it's obvious that Renly's philosophy of warfare might be summed up as the gods favour the largest army. And certainly, when he offered an alliance with Rob Stark, whom he expected to have an army of 40,000 or more men, and spoke of his expectations that Dawn would come in on his side, it should be clear that Renly dreamed of marching on King's Landing with an army of unprecedented size, estimated to be well over 150,000 strong, if his dreamed alliances came to pass. And obviously, such an army would sweep away any opposition from Tywin Lannister and install Renly Baratheon on his brother's throne in what he might be forgiven for thinking was nearly a foregone conclusion. But in this, he reckoned without several things. Doran Martell's innate caution, Tyrion Lannister's astute political mind, and his brother Stannis's obdurate persistence about his own rights under Westerosi law. Yes, so first to address the Dornish question and why Doran didn't join with Renly sooner, at Storm's End, for instance. George has said about this that, quote, Doran plays to win, whether at Savas or the Game of Thrones. Likely, he did not see Renly as a winner. The enmity between Dorn and Highgarden also played a part, I am sure. Yep, and Tyrion expands on this in story. As part of a clever trap to test the loyalties of the three counselors his father had identified as suspect, he set about making an offer of alliance to Doran Martell. At the time, according to Varys, it was, quote, commonly thought he will join Lord Renly. And while we think cautious Doran may have certainly been leaning in that direction, remembering the size of Renly's army, we also can't forget what we learned about Doran later, his plans for vengeance and his secret alliance with the exiled Targaryens. It's hard to say how that would have factored into Doran's decision on Renly had Renly defeated or worked out an alliance with Stannis. But while Tyrion goes as far as telling Varys that he's offered Doran vengeance in the matter of Princess Elia and a seat on the small council, or as Varys puts it, blood for his pride, a chair for his ambition, we have to point out that by all appearances, Doran's alliance with the Lannisters came about once it was clear that Renly and Stannis were in opposition to each other, and there would be no easy victory for Renly. But while peeling away a potential 50,000 allies from Renly was a victory for Tyrion, it wasn't yet a crushing defeat for Renly. That would come in the person of his stubborn elder brother Stannis. 
When the messenger arrived from Storm's End with news that Stannis had the castle under siege, it was the first Catelyn had heard of Stannis's claim to the throne, although not so with Renly, as we'll discover. And so, with Renly and his horse, Cat and her small escort raced cross-country to Storm's End, leaving the bulk of the army, all of his foot, plus baggage and supply trains, cooling their heels at Bitterbridge. And arriving at Storm's End, they prepared for a parley with Stannis. Catelyn was the first to arrive, and thus had a few moments of conversation with Stannis before Renly rode in. They exchanged chilly courtesies, and Stannis coolly promised her justice for Ned and the return of her daughters should he find them. When she challenged his presence at Storm's End, wondering why he was not focusing on Cersei and King's Landing, he told her, To take the city, I need the power of these southern lords I see across the field. My brother has them. I must needs take them from him. And Kat, who views her presence there as a mission of diplomacy, begins to make her peacemaker pitch. Stannis interrupts her. I have no quarrel with Renly, should he prove dutiful. I am his elder and his king. I want only what is mine by rights. Renly owes me loyalty and obedience. I mean to have it from him and from these other lords. What's interesting is that while Stannis is absolutely correct about his own legally superior claim, in that moment, Renly is the Lord of Storm's End, and the lords who are sworn to him are doing their feudal duty by following their liege lord, no less than Rob Stark's lords did for him. Rebels and traitors they may be. When Stannis proposes taking Renly's vassals from him, it's with language that seems rooted in Stannis's old grievance about being passed over as the Lord of Storm's End, with no indication he intends to preserve the established order of feudal hierarchy, vassal to lord to king. And there's more than a small amount of menace in it. There's only one of two ways he's going to take Renly's vassals. Yeah, either by force or by inheritance, remembering Stannis would be Renly's heir at this point. Well, anyway, as Cat forges ahead and continues with her diplomatic tack, Renly arrives and we get our first glimpse of the interaction between these polar opposites. It's a highly amusing exchange, one that seems designed by Renly to simply annoy his elder brother. Can that truly be you, Stannis? Stannis frowned. Who else should it be? Renly gave an easy shrug. When I saw that standard, I could not be certain. Whose banner do you bear? Mine own. The red-clad priestess spoke up. The king has taken for his sigil the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Renly seemed amused by that. All for the good. If we both use the same banner, the battle will be terribly confused. And Cat steps in again, trying to set the tone for a more diplomatic conversation. But if she thought Stannis wouldn't bend, then Renly would not be contained, and the parley soon devolves into insults and quibbling, starting with this. The Iron Throne is mine by rights. All those who deny that are my foes. The whole of the realm denies it, brother. Old men deny it with their death rattle. And unborn children deny it in their mother's wombs. 
They deny it in dawn and they deny it on the wall. No one wants you for their king. Sorry. Again, Cat tries to assert herself, but she's quickly drowned out by this. If you have proposals to make, make them, Stannis said brusquely, or I will be gone. Very well, said Renly. I propose that you dismount, bend your knee, and swear me your allegiance. Stannis choked back rage. That you shall never have. You served Robert. Why not me? Robert was my elder brother. You are the younger. Younger, bolder, far more comely, and a thief and a usurper besides. Renly shrugged. The Targaryens called Robert usurper. He seemed to be able to bear the shame. So shall I. So Stannis calls Renly a usurper, as we've said, something he himself takes very seriously and is in fact an excellent point in light of the fact that Robert left no legitimate heirs. Whether Renly was a traitor and usurper is perpetually debated in the fandom as much as Daemon Blackfire was debated in the realm for generations after his rebellion. But Renly himself seems undisturbed by the charge, confident in his own army and attributes. Yeah, what we see in this parley is that Renly's plan for Stannis initially seemed to be to remind his brother that not only did he have the larger army, but that he was more popular, and to ask Stannis politely to bend the knee. As this tack was unlikely to bear fruit with Stannis, one last time, Catelyn tried to get the brothers to have a productive conversation, telling them, If you were sons of mine, I would bang your heads together and lock you in a bedchamber until you remembered that you were brothers. Yeah, this dressing down, we find highly amusing. And following this is where it gets interesting, because when Stannis challenges her and threatens Rob, she replies that they are all rebels. But Renly interjects to tell her about Stannis' letter, and Stannis reveals Cersei's incest and her children's bastardy. Catelyn is shocked, but then slowly starts to piece together some interesting details. However, we find Renly's reaction to be even more interesting. Yeah, because Renly's attitude can only be termed bored and dismissive on its surface, but we would add that it must be calculatingly so, because, as we've suggested, there's a strong likelihood that Renly has known this fact for many months now, and because he then admits to having seen Stannis' letter, declaring Joffrey's bastardy and his own claim to the throne, when he was encamped at Horn Hill some weeks ago. And this is interesting because Renly had previously not only failed to inform Catelyn of Stannis' letter, but when he attempted to bully her, and by extension Rob, into agreeing to an alliance in which he, Renly, would hold the upper hand, he had also tried to convince her that Stannis would soon be joining him. And never forget my brother Stannis. All of which says to us very plainly that Renly was going to great lengths to keep the story of Cersei and her children out of his narrative, since by acknowledging it, he would be faced with the dilemma of what to do about his elder brother's superior claim. Yeah, acknowledging the facts of Cersei's treason would mean that Renly would have to admit 
his own treason, as such an admission would only serve to validate Stannis's claim. Ranley instead seemed to prefer to level the playing field by ignoring the claims about Cersei and presenting himself and Stannis as equally rebellious. So, while Cat and Stannis exchanged words about Cersei, Renly offered mostly dismissals, and then a distraction, saying, You may well have the better claim, Stannis, but I still have the larger army. Renly drew a peach from inside his cloak. Yes, so Renly's peach is an iconic scene that's often discussed in the fandom. Renly offers Stannis a peach, and when his brother refuses, says to him, A man should never refuse to taste a peach. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say. Winter is coming. And Stannis is irritated, saying he didn't come to eat fruit, nor to be threatened. Catelyn is desperately trying to keep the peace and the focus on a productive discussion, and Renly makes his final offer to Stannis. When I make threats, you'll know it. If truth be told, I've never liked you, Stannis, but you are my own blood, and I have no wish to slay you. So, if it's Storm's End you want, take it, as a brother's gift. As Robert once gave it to me, I give it to you. But Stannis declares Storm's End his by rights, giving in to his long-held grievance that Robert bestowed the castle on the younger brother. In his pride, he refuses to take Renly at face value, offering a simple peach and then a castle and a reminder of their blood bond. Stannis replied with anger and insults, which Renly replied to with more jests. But for all his smiles, he made a reference to the sordid tale Littlefinger and the Lannisters put around in response to Stannis's own letter about Cersei. As to your daughter, I understand. If my wife looked like yours, I'd send my fool to service her as well. And like his earlier jests, this was obviously calculated to enrage Stannis, who drew his sword and pointed it at Renly, making a threat and an offer of his own, also laced with a potent reminder of their shared blood. I am not without mercy, nor do I wish to sully Lightbringer with a brother's blood. For the sake of the mother who bore us both, I will give you this night to rethink your folly, Renly. Strike your banners and come to me before dawn, and I'll grant you Storm's End and your old seat on the council, and even name you my heir until a son is born to me. Otherwise, I shall destroy you. This was a generous offer coming from Stannis, but to say Renly was unconvinced is an understatement, as he points again to his superior numbers. Even with only a fraction of his army at his heels, he still had more men than Stannis. My foot is coming behind, a hundred thousand swords and spears and pikes, and you will destroy me with what, pray? That paltry rabble I see there huddled under the castle walls. I'll call them five thousand and be generous, codfish lords and onion knights and swords. Half of them are like to come over to me before the battle starts. You have fewer than 400 horse, my scouts tell me, free riders in boiled leather who will not stand an instant against armoured lances. I do not care how seasoned a warrior you think you are, Stannis. 
that host of yours won't survive the first charge of my vanguard. And again, there is a palpable threat in Stannis' words. Come the dawn, we shall see. And in Melisandre's as well, look to your own sins, Lord Renly. So, while Renly had professed his desire to avoid kinslaying, Stannis, ever the more honest and plain spoken of the two, seems not to shy away from it. While he notes their kinship, he's desperate for Renly's men, and the only way for him to get them, as we said, is with Renly's surrender or death, never forgetting that as Renly had no children of his own, Stannis was his heir. In spite of his anger and desperation, the peach did in fact have an impact on Stannis. He mentions it several times later on, one time telling Davos, Renly offered me a peach at our parley, mocked me, defied me, threatened me, and offered me a peach. I thought he was drawing a blade and went for mine own. Was that his purpose, to make me show fear? Or was it one of his pointless jests? When he spoke of how sweet the peach was, did his words have some hidden meaning? Only Renly could vex me so with a piece of fruit. He brought his doom on himself with his treason. But I did love him, Davos. I know that now. I swear... I'll go to my grave thinking of my brother's peach. Poor Stannis, searching for a hidden message in a piece of fruit, dreaming of it, unable to forget about it, knowing it means something, but unable to quite grasp it. And Renly, like a boy who cried wolf, unable to make his brother hear the simple words he spoke. A man should never refuse to taste a peach. He may never get the chance again. The peach scene shows us the basic and irreconcilable differences between the two brothers. Yes, it does. And while there is a message there, it's very simple and not really hidden or nefarious at all. George had this to say about that peach. The peach represents, well, it's his pleasure. It's tasting the juices of life. Stannis is a very martial man, concerned with his duty, and with that peach, Renly says, smell the roses. Because Stannis is always concerned with his duty and honour in what he should be doing, and he never really stops to taste the fruit. Renly wants him to taste the fruit, but it's lost. So, the peach represents both the tragedy of Stannis and Renly, and living in the moment. Stannis is unable to do so, while Renly apparently excels at it. We see that carpe diem aspect of the peach again in A Dance with Dragons, when Asha Greyjoy remembers eating peaches in a happier, more innocent past with her lover, Carl the Maid. And there may be an interesting little connection between Robert seizing pleasure in the midst of chaos and peaches too, since the whorehouse in which Robert sheltered and apparently conceived a child during the Battle of the Bells was called the peach. Yes, so plenty to think about with peaches there. And while Renly is repeatedly noted to be so like Robert, a connection would not really be much of a surprise. 
In this regard, Stannis was really the odd one out, an almost painful awkwardness that lent a peculiar vulnerability to his personality that Maester Cresson was well aware of, if no one else. And getting back to the parlay, the outcome was one that would surely have stressed the dear old Maester, Stannis threatening to destroy Renly if he didn't bend the knee, and Renly being unrepentant in his arrogance. That's right, and only Catelyn seemed truly distressed by the outcome. Renly, with his characteristic nonchalance, seemed willing to shrug off his brother's threat. So be it. Stannis was never the most cherished of brothers, I confess. Do you suppose this tale of his is true? If Joffrey is the Kingslayer's get... And here, Catelyn points out again the point that Starks, first Ned, then Rob, and now she, have been making all along. Your brother is the lawful heir. Renly admitted as much, but, enjoying his own position as Stannis' heir, pointed out that was only, quote, while he lives. And then he returned to his familiar theme of being the best man for the job. Though it's a fool's law, wouldn't you agree? Why the oldest son and not the best fitted? The crown will suit me as it never suited Robert and would not suit Stannis. I have it in me to be a great king, strong yet generous, clever, just, diligent, loyal to my friends and terrible to my enemies, yet Capable of forgiveness. Patient. Mm, that was Renly to the end. Sure of himself and his abilities. Secure in his popularity and his prospects and definitely not modest. In our next segment, we'll explore what happened next as Renly prepared to meet his brother in battle. But first, here's a reading of Renly and Stannis and that peach. All this of snakes and incest is droll, but it changes nothing. You may well have the better claim, Stannis, but I still have the larger army. Renly's hand slid inside his cloak. Stannis saw and reached at once for the hilt of his sword, but before he could draw steel, his brother produced a peach. Would you like one, brother? From Highgarden. You've never tasted anything so sweet, I promise you. He took a bite. Juice ran from the corner of his mouth. I did not come here to eat fruit. My lords, we ought to be hammering out the terms of an alliance, not trading taunts. A man should never refuse to taste a peach. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say. Winter is coming. After his parley with Stannis, Renly had no choice but to prepare for battle. It was a battle he insisted he hadn't wanted, but once committed, he seemed resigned to his brother's death. Stannis, he knew, would never yield. As Lord Rowan reminded them, 
Stannis ate rats rather than open his gates during the siege of Storm's End. Renly had not forgotten, but being Renly, he was still confident of his superior numbers and his victory. Yeah, and we'll be discussing the military tactics and decision-making in our long-promised War of the Five Kings episodes. So here we're going to focus on the struggle between the brothers and its implication, and of course, its outcome. While Stannis would survive the day against the odds, thanks to a sorceress doppelganger, there are other survivors too, and we'll consider Renly's legacy with some of them. But first, let's talk about the events of the evening after the parley. When he returned to his camp, Renly informed his lords, My brother has not changed. Castles and courtesies will not appease him. He must have blood. Well, I am of a mind to grant his wish. After some debate and battle were settled on, Catelyn begged leave to depart. Renly denied her, in spite of her protests, that she came as an envoy, not to participate in another battle. And an envoy you shall leave, but wiser than you came. You shall see what befalls rebels with your own eyes, so your son can hear it from your own lips. So, a none-too-subtle message there for Rob Stark. In spite of Kat's best efforts, she knows at this point that her mission has failed, and that Renly and Stannis will attempt to destroy each other before either turns towards King's Landing. They've also both made their position on Rob very clear, each making their own brand of threat against him. Rob, she understands, will be on his own against the Lannisters. But before she departed to spend the evening in prayer, Cat suggested that Renly pray for wisdom. But, as we'll discuss in The War of the Five Kings, Renly ignored the wise advice of Lord Rowan and insisted on meeting Stannis in battle. Such a characteristically arrogant decision displays the distinct lack of wisdom we see in Renly. He's like a bright star in the evening sky, all that copper Donald Noy spoke of, beautiful to look at but not all that useful. Tyrion had perceived the truth of it back in King's Landing. Renly Baratheon did not frighten Tyrion half as much as his brother Stannis did. Renly was beloved of the commons, but he had never before led men in war. Stannis was otherwise. Hard, cold, inexorable. And that cold and inexorable man would soon see to it that his brother's light was quenched once and for all. Half a year earlier, Maester Cresson had tried to counsel Stannis in the matter of his younger brother, remembering that Cresson had been a father figure to the three brothers after the death of their own father. But Stannis's wife, Selyse, had her own ideas. Here's the exchange. How many swords will the Lord of Light put into my hand? Stannis demanded again. All you need, his wife promised. The swords of Storm's End and Highgarden for a start, and all their lord's bannermen. Davos would tell you different, Stannis said. Those swords are sworn to Renly. They love my charming young brother as they once loved Robert, as they have never loved me. Yes, she answered, but if Renly should die... Stannis looked at his lady with narrowed eyes, until Cresson could not hold his tongue. It is not to be thought, your grace, whatever follies Renly has committed. Follies? I call them treasons. Stannis turned back to his wife. My brother is young and strong, and he has a vast host around him, 
and these rainbow knights of his. Melisandre has gazed into the flames and seen him dead. Cresson was horror-struck. Fratricide! My lord, this is evil, unthinkable! Please listen to me! Lady Selyse gave him a measured look. And what will you tell him, maester? How he might win half a kingdom if he goes to the Starks on his knees and sells our daughter to Liza Arryn? I have heard your counsel, Cresson, Lord Stannis said. Now I will hear hers. You are dismissed. So Selyse's cold suggestion prefigures Renly's death at the hands of Melisandre, servant of the Lord of Light and juxtaposed with Crescent's horror at the very idea of kinslaying and fratricide is Mel's vision and Stannis's obvious willingness to consider Renly's death among his options. Whether Stannis was consciously aware of Mel's plans for Renly on the night of the parley, following the death of Crescent, he must have been aware of what she was capable of. And his protests about not wanting to sully Lightbringer with a brother's blood, seem as sincere as Renly's own disavowals. For when the moment came, each swore to destroy the other. And in the end, it was Catelyn who witnessed Renly's death. While elsewhere in the story, there's confusion and mystery with some blaming Cat herself, or Brienne, or one of his other guards, and notably Davos blaming Melisandre, it's Cat who gives us the connection to Stannis. She thought she glimpsed movement, but when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering, Something was queer, wrong, and then she saw Renly's sword still in its scabbard, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Cold, said Renly in a small puzzled voice, a heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. And as Renly died in Brienne's arms, Cat had a moment to consider the shadow. Something dark and evil had happened there, she knew. Something that she could not begin to understand. Renly never cast that shadow. Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. And moments later she would tell Brienne... I saw a shadow. I thought it was Renly's shadow at first, but it was his brother's. Lord Stannis? I felt him. It makes no sense, I know. And her thoughts were even more certain. Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. So the connection with Stannis was never widely reported as chaos reigned in Renly's camp following the assassination. Davos Seaworth makes the connection with Melisandre, but is only certain after he is assigned to deliver her to Storm's End, so she can birth the shadow servant that will kill Sir Courtney Penrose. In the meantime, Stannis' squire reports that the king is having trouble sleeping, and Stannis himself will tell Davos, I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming and blood. I was still abed when he died, 
Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh, and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out, but what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. And while the reader can see that Stannis' dreams are a near picture-perfect description of the scene, Stannis himself continues to be in denial, although his protests after Davos challenges him following the disaster at the Blackwater sound increasingly weak. She saw Renly's end in the flames, yes, but she had no more part in it than I did. The priestess was with me. Your Devon would tell you so. Ask him if you doubt me. She would have spared Renly if she could. It was Melisandre who urged me to meet with him and give him one last chance to amend his treason. And perhaps proving that he's either having the second sight or that he somehow witnessed his brother's death, Stannis continues to provide details from inside the tent that he really shouldn't know. Renly and his peach. In my dreams, I see the juice running from his mouth, the blood from his throat. So we find it quite hard to trace how this information would have got back to Stannis. Renly with blood running from his throat is exactly as Catelyn described it. And as much as Stannis tries to fool himself, we think it's possible that he's becoming increasingly uncomfortably aware that the responsibility for his brother's death might lay at his own doorstep. Remember, he had to have known that Melisandre was involved in the mysterious death of Courtney Penrose, for instance. But without his POV, it's really hard to tell for sure, since Renly is rarely mentioned after A Storm of Swords, mostly by Brienne or Loras, and occasionally in Cersei's thoughts as she congratulates herself for being rid of him. Yeah, but there's an interesting quote from Stannis, on the subject of traitors, when he attempts to justify the execution of Lord Alistair Florent to Davos. I'm not a cruel man, Sir Davos. You know me, have known me long. This is not my decree. It has always been so since Aegon's day and before. Damon Blackfire, the Brothers Toyne, the Vulture King, Grand Maester Harith. Traitors have always paid with their lives, even Rhaenyra Targaryen. She was the daughter to one king and mother to two more, yet she died a traitor's death for trying to usurp her brother's crown. It is law, Davos, law, not cruelty. So it's interesting that Stannis chooses the example of someone who was, in his eyes, a traitor, who, quote, died a traitor's death for trying to usurp her brother's crown. We could debate Rhaenyra's claim, and incidentally, she is Stannis' direct ancestor, and it's through her that the Baratheon branch is grafted to the main trunk of the Targaryen family tree. But the point is, the example he chose there. As he struggles to justify one clearly cruel execution of a kinsman, he makes a strong case justifying another death one he just might be feeling some guilt over, especially considering the general taboo against kinslaying in Westeros. Well, it's not hard to see a certain theme coming up in Stannis' arc over and over again, but we'll leave a more in-depth discussion of that for another day. 
Next, we want to talk through Renly's legacy in the story. But before we do so, we're going to take a bit of a detour to look at an allegedly supernatural phenomenon that begins to affect the story late in Clash and is still being mentioned into A Dance with Dragons. The mystery of Renly's ghost causes intrigue from the Battle of the Blackwater onwards, and we think it's a more pervasive, subtle, complex, and clever plot device than it's given credit for. As far as we know, nobody has ever laid out the entirety of the Renly's ghost mystery before in the fandom. There are aspects and connotations that are easy to overlook. And so let us walk you through it and see if there are parts that you might have missed. The mystery of Renly's ghost actually begins in A Game of Thrones. When Sansa meets him at Darry. Renly is wearing distinctive green armor and an antlered helm crowned with a, quote, magnificent rack shimmering in gold. And later, when Ned is visiting Topo Mott, the proud blacksmith discussed the armor he's made for his notable clients. The Knight of Flowers bought all his armor here, Tobo boasted, and many high lords, the ones who knew fine steel, even Lord Renly, the king's own brother. Perhaps the hand had seen Lord Renly's new armor, the green plate with the golden antlers. No other armorer in the city could get that deep a green. He knew the secret of putting color in the steel itself. So, Renly's green armour is an important part of the later mystery, and it's brought to the reader's attention very early on. The golden antlers make Renly easily identifiable on the battlefield, and focus is drawn to them again at the tourney of the hand when one breaks and is given to the small folk. Tales of Renly's unique and magnificent armour surely spread amongst the masses. Incidentally, we've never seen this addressed before, but the distinctive green and gold of his armour are notably Tyrell colours, not Baratheon. And since Marjorie appears to have been meant for Robert early on, we think this was likely a tribute of sorts to his lover, Loras. Renly is noted to wear green more frequently than any colour, and we think this may have been an early hint at his deep connection with the Tyrells. And in A Clash of Kings, Stannis and Melisandre enter the fold. We hear early on that Melisandre has gazed into the flames and seen Renly dead. She goes on to play her role in fulfilling that prophecy. Soon she births a shade to murder him. And in the aftermath, Courtney Penrose, who will soon be the next shadow victim, stands tall and refuses to open the gates at Storm's End. The reason for his stubbornness, we learn, is that he demands to see the mortal remains before he opens his gates. But it seems that Renly's corpse has unaccountably vanished. We think this is a huge factor in Renly's ghost later obtaining mythical status, a detail that's easily overlooked, with Renly's death already being so mysterious, with several different contradictory tales emerging from the camp, imagine the gossip between thousands of confused and bewildered soldiers when their king's body disappears without a trace. We think the average soldier would already be puzzled, maybe even spooked. Back on Dragonstone, and Melisandre's prediction of Renly's death has now been confirmed. However, Stannis reveals to Davos she had another rather curious vision. 
Melisandre saw another day in her flames as well, a morrow where Renly rode out of the south in his green armour to smash my host beneath the walls of King's Landing. Okay, and this vision obviously contradicts the first vision of Renly's death, and so Stannis is describing it as another morrow, a future that was seen by Melisandre, but that now won't happen because of her intervention in making the first vision come true. And soon enough, Stannis' men are beneath the walls of King's Landing and experiencing a crushing defeat. We never have a point of view of Renly's ghost. Rather, we hear of the peculiar events from Dantos the Fool. He shouts, His own men hardly fought, they say. Some ran but more bent the knee and went over, shouting for Lord Renly. What must Stannis have thought when he heard that? And then he goes on. It was Lord Renly, Lord Renly in his green armour, with the fires shimmering off his golden antlers. Lord Renly, with his tall spear in his hand. They say he killed Sir Guyard Morrigan himself in single combat, and a dozen other great knights as well. It was Renly, it was Renly, it was Renly, oh, the banners, darling Sansa, oh, to be a knight. <laughs> So, what must Stannis have thought indeed? What was going on here? The gossip is that the Tyrell vanguard showed up with none other than Renly, inspiring them by slicing through Stannis's notable troops. Sir Guyard Morrigan was in Renly's king's guard before defecting to Stannis, so imagine how Renly, slaying him, looked in the heat of battle amidst other knights and soldiers who had defected to Stannis after Renly's death, bearing in mind that Renly's body was notably missing, and it's likely few people ever actually saw it or confirmed he was dead. And so Melisandre's vision was not a morrow that never came, but as we'll see, it was in fact closely connected to the one of Renly dying. While the flames told her the future, lo and behold, she interpreted the messages incorrectly. In her own words from A Storm of Swords and along similar lines, if sometimes I have mistaken a warning for a prophecy, or a prophecy for a warning, the fault lies in the reader and not the book. And as Tyrion lies in his sickbed, it's Maester Balabar who first reports the reborn Renly being called Renly's Ghost. Since the night of the battle, Lord Tywin saved us all. The small folk say it was King Renly's ghost, but wiser men know better. It was your father and Lord Tyrell with the Knight of the Flowers and Lord Littlefinger. Yeah, notice it's the small folk who call him that. Altogether, it's an interesting commentary from George about how legends are born and spread. But at this point, the reader is also confused as we move from Clash to A Storm of Swords. Tyrion wonders early on if Renly is indeed dead as Bronn tells of how many of Stannis' men moved back to Renly's side after seeing his exploits during the Blackwater. By any estimation, Renly's ghost seems to have had a huge impact on the outcome of that battle. And when Davos hears of Renly's, quote, shade, he does not rule out the idea of ghosts, having seen so many queer things, but later we see skepticism from Oberyn, who laughs at the rumours. However, the point is, 
People are talking about Renly's ghost all over the Seven Kingdoms. Rumors like this spread like wildfire. Yeah, the success of Renly's ghost as a political tool was not lost on Tywin in this conversation with Tyrion. Arya Stark is surely dead. So was Renly until the Blackwater. Remembering that it's Littlefinger who was responsible for both fake Arya and fake Renly, it's possible to view Renly's ghost as perhaps the inspiration, but certainly the precursor for Jane Poole being paraded as the young Stark girl. And on the subject of the hidden pervasiveness of the Renly's ghost plot to the benefit of the Tyrells and Lannisters, it also helps to facilitate Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding. With Joffrey being less than popular and with continued doubts of his legitimacy, Renly actually helps win the couple favor from the common folk from beyond the grave. Here's a quote. The mob loved Marjorie so much, they were even willing to love Joffrey again. She had belonged to Renly, the handsome young prince who had loved them so well he had come back from beyond the grave to save them. Yes, so Renly saving the city at the Blackwater, in the small folk's eyes, inadvertently makes them love Joffrey by association. And at their wedding, songs are sung of Renly, such as this from Hamish. From his throne of bones, the Lord of Death looked down on the murdered Lord. Hamish began, and went on to tell how Renly, repenting his attempt to usurp his nephew's crown, had defied the Lord of Death himself, and crossed back to the land of the living to defend the realm against his brother. Queen Marjorie was teary-eyed by the end, when the shade of brave Lord Renly flew to Highgarden to steal one last look at his true love's face. Well, that is quite the story from Hamish the Harper, and this all adds to the legend and mythology. Renly's ghost turned out to be a political masterstroke for the Lannisters and Tyrells. Co-opting Renly's memory and popularity was extremely effective, whether it was intended to be quite so pervasive or not. But by the end of Storm, it was time for the reveal. Most readers never swallowed the supernatural ghost explanation. That was a thread woven in-universe for the small folk with their songs, tales, and their gossip. So when Jaime and Loras are alone as brothers of the King's Guard, they have an exchange in which Loras reveals all. It is said you fought magnificently in the battle, almost as well as Lord Renly's ghost beside you. A sworn brother has no secrets from his Lord Commander. Tell me, sir, who was wearing Renly's armour? For a moment, Loras Tyrell looked as though he might refuse, but in the end, he remembered his vows. My brother, he said sullenly, Renly was taller than me and broader in the chest. His armour was too loose on me, but it suited Garland well. Was the masquerade your notion or his? Lord Littlefinger suggested it. He said it would frighten Stannis's ignorant men-at-arms. And so it did. And some knights and lordlings too. 
Well, you gave the singers something to make rhymes about. I suppose that's not to be despised. What did you do with Renly? I buried him with mine own hands, in a place he showed me once when I was a squire at Storm's End. No one shall ever find him there to disturb his rest. So, a full and satisfying reveal here. Renly's ghost was Garland. It was Littlefinger's plan, and Renly's body was missing because Loras had secretly buried it, remembering he was no doubt trying to obfuscate his affection for his lover, and there's no ambiguity there in Loras's revelation. And consider this, by intervening to ensure that her first vision came true, while averting the second, Melisandre inadvertently created the circumstances in which the second vision of Renly leading an army that smashed Stannis' host beneath the walls of King's Landing could come to pass. Yeah, we think Renly's ghost can be viewed as a cautionary tale on the dangers of trying to intervene in fate, but it's also a fantastic mystery, has a missing body, prophecy, clever scheming from Littlefinger, and a hidden identity. All the things we love about A Song of Ice and Fire. It was an interesting plot device on a meta level, and also the scheme worked extremely well in-universe. It was a story that ran and ran until the ghost had a life of its own. You know, all of this from one man simply dressing in a dead man's armour. And talking of the legend running and running, in A Dance with Dragons, Renly's ghost gets a mention as far afield as Essos from Kem of the Second Sons, who himself was at the Blackwater, saw the ghost, and in dance he discusses it with Tyrion. Perhaps in a few hundred years, Westeros and Essos will be filled with tales of a magical king back from the dead to lead his men in his green armour, a Westerosi version of King Arthur. Perhaps George wants us to consider how news and hearsay function in his world and how they impact any number of the ancient legends discussed through the books. Also, remember that it was Jamie who extracted the truth from Loras in the confidence of a sworn brotherhood. Neither Jamie nor the Tyrells are likely to debunk the myth anytime soon, and at this point, who would believe the truth anyway? The ghost may be the greatest, though unintended, legacy of Renly's death. With the legend spreading far and wide, and Renly's one-time allies joining with his one-time enemies to make potent use of his memory, it may yet continue to have more unintended consequences in the Winds of Winter and beyond. Okay, and now let's wrap up our look at Renly's human legacy, which continues to ripple on even though his death occurred midway through the second book. As we mentioned, following A Storm of Swords, Renly is mostly mentioned by Brienne, with a number of mentions by Sir Loras in Jamie POVs. We'll be discussing his lasting impact on Loras in a future episode, but we'd like to point out that dramatic statements like When the sun has set, no candle can replace it, made to Tyrion, and I will never betray Renly by word or deed. He was the king that should have been. He was the best of them. To Jamie, indicate a profound grief and sense of loss in the young man. 
And now let's consider Brienne. As we've discussed, her love for Renly was idealised, comparable to the starry-eyed crush Sansa has on Loras. Into A Feast for Crows, she still carries a torch of him, saying, I would have given my life for King Renly and died happy. Yeah, Brienne is so innocent and so grateful for the kindness Renly showed her that she was happy to love him as devotedly as a pet puppy from afar. And incidentally, she seems completely unaware of Renly's relationship with Loras. And while we saw vengeance on her mind consistently in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, in A Feast for Crows, her thoughts are more retrospective and concerned with honor. She thinks of how she failed Renly as she's determined not to fail Jamie. Yeah, it's almost like Jamie is beginning to replace Renly in Brienne's devotion. And when she meets Gendry at the inn at the crossroads, his resemblance to Robert and, by extension, Renly, leads to many thoughts about, quote, her sweet lord, who had died in her arms. Obviously, Brienne is forever changed by Renly's death, her devotion and loyalty now seasoned with guilt and her own sense of failure. Whereas Loras may forever regret Renly's death, Brienne will be forever haunted by it. Yeah, and time has yet to reveal how her determination not to fail Jamie Lannister will play out in The Winds of Winter, but we're pretty sure it will be a factor. And Renly's death can also be said to have contributed to that of his castellan, Sir Courtney Penrose, and to Edric Storm being taken from the home in which he had grown up, back to Dragonstone, and ultimately to exile in Essos, which again is a plotline that may yet have some play in upcoming chapters, Certainly, as Robert's only acknowledged son, a lot of people see some potential there, and the fact that Varys appears to have groomed the boy's adoration for Robert with lavish gifts in the king's name may yet prove significant. So, with Edric waiting in the wings, remembering how he was smuggled away from Dragonstone in A Storm of Swords, we'll have to reserve judgment on that aspect of Renly's legacy. And of course, we can't forget those men Sir Loras slew in his rage after discovering Renly's body, Emmon Kai and Robar Royce, who were innocent of anything except being on hand at the wrong time. And as for other members of the Rainbow Guard, Guyard Morrigan and Bryce Caron died at the Blackwater after defecting to Stannis, and Parman Crane, who also defected to Stannis, possibly due to familial connections with the Florence, is a prisoner at Highgarden after being captured by Loras at the Blackwater. Of the men from Renly's fanciful Rainbow Guard, only Loras Tyrell escaped unscathed, and his fate may yet prove to be even more gruesome than the others. Yes, Sir Loras is allegedly dying of wounds received while storming Dragonstone in A Feast for Crows, much to Cersei's delight. So, while Catelyn thought that Stannis had won all with Renly's death, many others were not so lucky. And we think George has made some interesting statements on the implications of assassination in general. On the one hand, he's challenged fan speculation that, quote, killing someone on the battlefield is different from assassinating someone in their sleep. With the response, is it really? 
Are you saying that you would not have participated in the attempted bombing of Hitler? Instead, you'd prefer to kill him in battle where he'd have a fair chance of fighting? So interesting questions raised by George there. Well, Renly and Hitler aren't exactly great analogues, but we actually think that sounds a lot like Tywin's disingenuous and exaggerated question from A Storm of Swords. Explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. So the expediency of killing a few to avoid a greater loss of life seems to be something George likes to explore. On the other hand, in a short story written many years ago called And Death His Legacy, George told the story of a politically motivated assassination, the elimination of a dangerous demagogue that was planned and executed for the greater good. And here, in typical GRRM fashion, all didn't turn out as planned. The assassination made a martyr of the demagogue and one of his associates rose up to take his place. This puts us in mind of Melisandre's words to Stannis in A Storm of Swords. I am sorry, your grace. This is not an end. More false kings will soon rise up to take the crowns of those who've died. So, false kings rising up. And while there are quite a few obvious candidates for who the false kings are, including Stannis himself, some fans speculate about one that has a relatively close connection to Renly, his ward, Edric Storm, as we mentioned, currently waiting in the wings in Essos. While Renly was hardly a demagogue, he was considered a dangerous traitor by Stannis, and we have to wonder about the legacy of his death on his older brother. Stannis has risked everything for his cause and his claim, including kinslaying. But to what end if he hasn't achieved a decisive victory? At some point, especially if he's suffering from guilt as we suggested, might the price seem too high for him? Hmm, it just might. And Renly's death would be no small part of that legacy. What's interesting about Renly is that he came so close to achieving his goals. And had he made different choices, perhaps left Stannis alone at Storm's End and focused on the real prize at King's Landing? Had he been wise enough to successfully ally with Rob Stark or Dawn or both? Renly's legacy may have been very different. As he told Catelyn, I have it in me to be a great king. And with a little more wisdom and a little less hubris, he may have done. In the end, though, his death is his legacy. Giving the truth to Cersei's words to Ned, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. And now to wrap things up, here's a reading of the final moments in Renly's life from Catelyn's point of view, in A Storm of Swords. I beg you in the name of the mother, Catelyn began, when a sudden gust of wind flung open the door of the tent. She thought she glimpsed movement, but when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. She heard Renly begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, Candles guttering, shivering. Something was queer, wrong. 
And then she saw Renly's sword still in its scabbard, sheathed still, but the shadow sword. Cold, said Renly in a small, puzzled voice. A heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like a cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. Your grace, no, cried Brienne the Blue when she saw that evil flow, sounding as scared as any little girl. The king stumbled into her arms, a sheet of blood creeping down the front of his armor, a dark red tide that drowned his green and gold. More candles guttered out. Renly tried to speak, but he was choking on his own blood. His legs collapsed, and only Brienne's strength held him up. She threw back her head and screamed, wordless in her anguish. The shadow. Something dark and evil had happened here, she knew, something that she could not begin to understand. Renly never cast that shadow. Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. Thanks so much for joining us today for our in-depth look at Renly Baratheon. We'll be back soon with more about Renly and others when we bring you our long-promised analysis of The War of the Five Kings. And as usual, now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us characters like Renly to analyze, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Consider being a patron of the podcast, and your name could be here too. Heartfelt thanks to the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, I Am Epic, Buxton, Boss, Elena Targaryen, Doe, Dion, Alexis, Amber, Jessica, Kurt, Joe, Chris K, June, Matt, John H, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Melitza, Cinder of the Citadel, J.M., Demetrios, Joy B., Maltude, Yorlan, A.U. Packmule, Painkiller Jane, Mary H. of House Stark, Marja the Mage, Lady of the Frostfangs, Rusted Revolver, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, William James, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithomancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz, and Lady Diarliz of Castle the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to... The Red Woman, Anne, Sully, Christina, Clay, Faceless Miami Man, Jim, JT Was Here, Monaro Geek TV, Sir Matt of Wearside, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Tim, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Marcel, Vince, Bright Magpie, Joseph, Jonathan, Kevin, Doc Deckard, Adam, Danielle, Tana, Dennis, Elizabeth, Sin Bobby Joe, The Orange Man, Emma, Joffrey, Sarah, Victoria, Judson, Roger, Jordana, and Yoan Longbeard, the well-read wine gobbler from Ultima Thule. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, or if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with The War of the Five Kings. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.